week. And if you flip over the back of the bulletin, all the Bible verses that we're looking at, not only will they be on the screen, but they're also on that sheet of paper as well. And if you want to write any notes or anything, there's pens in the seats in front of you. So help yourself to those if that's helpful for you. Well, I tell you folks, it's only four and a half weeks to Christmas. And there's a kind of mixed reaction there. Depending on how much you like Christmas, that will either make you really excited or really depressed. I'm more leaning towards the latter personally, but hey, that tells you more about my personality. This will be my 24th Christmas with Claire. Claire's actually sick in bed today, um, but this will be my 24th Christmas with Claire. Our first Christmas was really interesting. We hadn't been going out very long, went to stay at her house uh, with her family, and suddenly became aware that the way we did Christmas in our family wasn't the same as everybody else did Christmas. And that the way that they did Christmas in their family was really quite different to the way that I'd been brought up doing Christmas. In our family, we opened all our presents at the crack of dawn. Everything was open, all in one go. And then we had all day to play with them. That, to me, that's logical. It makes sense. It's the right way to do it. And then we would have Christmas dinner at 1 p.m. My dad was a stickler, and I'm the same. It, you know, 1 p.m., it's time to eat. So we would sit down to a full Christmas dinner, followed by a buffet tea at no later than 6 p.m. Anything later was, was just wrong. And in Claire's family, a little bit different, a little bit different. They had some stocking presents when they woke up. They'd all go into Claire's parents' bedroom. That was a bit weird, I've got to be honest. And then they wouldn't open their main presents until way after dinner. And they didn't sit down to Christmas dinner until at least 3 p.m. in the afternoon. What's that about? And, and I, I was about 12 o'clock, I sort of peeked into the, into the kitchen and said, you know, so how's, how's that going? And Claire's mum offered me a turkey sandwich. I want Christmas dinner, I don't want turkey sandwich. I want Christmas dinner, it's, it's, it's almost lunchtime. And I really struggled to cope. This is weird. I like Claire, but this whole thing's a little bit, little bit strange. And they didn't sit down to eat their Christmas tea till 10 p.m. 10 p.m. at night. It was, it was just mad. And I've always had stomach problems, as, as most of you will know. So the idea of loading myself up with Stilton and all that kind of stuff at, at, at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock was just more than I could really handle. But, you know, in, in one sense, their Christmas was the same as our Christmas. But in other ways, it was very, very different. I've got a picture here of Christmas tea in my house. And actually, some of you might recognize some of the people. Well, you might recognize people that look a little bit like someone here. This is Christmas when I think I was about seven, I, I think. And if you look carefully, you'll see Rob's parents uh, at our house for Christmas tea. Rob's not on there. That's his oldest brother. Uh, that's actually his dad, although that could be Rob, couldn't it? Uh, it looks the double of, of Rob. That's actually Rob's oldest brother, Ian. And they came to our house for Christmas tea quite often when we lived in London. Christmas in my family was essentially the same as Christmas in Claire's family. But actually, it was also very different. It was the same thing, but actually there were some significant differences. And when you face something that seems new or different, maybe like coming to church for the first time, you think, well, this is a little bit unsettling. I'm not quite sure what's happening. I'm not quite sure what's going on. And a little bit of clarification can be helpful, can't it? When someone just explains what's going to be happening. And when I was starving, it was one o'clock, no sign of Christmas dinner. Claire just, well, we will eat, but it won't be when you're used to eating. Just a little bit of clarification can be really helpful. Well, you know, two weeks ago, we began a series here at Regent looking at what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's essentially a sermon by Jesus, a presentation by Jesus on what it means to belong to God's kingdom. 
God's kingdom is wherever God rules in people's hearts, okay? So if you trusted and you know and love Jesus, God's kingdom is alive in you. It's not a geographical thing like the United Kingdom. It's wherever God is ruling and reigning in people's hearts. And Jesus taught how we get to belong to that kingdom. It's through being born again, through having a brand new start. We're going to look at that a bit more this morning. And then he teaches in this Sermon on the Mount how we should behave if we've joined this kingdom how we should behave, how we should live. And this whole concept of God's kingdom was new to the people that Jesus taught. They hadn't heard about it before. It was, it, it was new to them. Just like I'd grown up doing things a certain way in my family. So the Jews of Jesus' day, which was to whom firstly Jesus began to teach and preach to, the Jews of Jesus' day had grown up with what we now call the Old Testament of the Bible and all of the teachings that went along with that. And when Jesus came along, some of what he was saying seemed to be the same as what they'd grown up with, what they, what they were used to from the Old Testament, but some of what he was saying and doing and teaching and, and, and living out in his life was quite different. And so he had to clarify with them the relationship between what he was teaching, how he was living, what he was saying, and the Old Testament, what they'd grown up with. And so we're going to read the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is effectively a clarification by Jesus, saying, look, this, this stuff I'm teaching and living out, I'm going to tell you how it fits with what you've known from the past, with what you've grown up with. So we're going to read that little section this morning. It's Matthew 5, it's 17 to 20. If you've got a Bible, you can turn If not, that's fine. I'm going to read it. You can just listen as I read the verses to you. So this is Jesus. He's just started teaching about this great kingdom what it means to live in God's kingdom, and then he clarifies the relationship between what he's begun to teach and what people have grown up with around him. So we're going to read Matthew 5, and we're going to read verse 17 to 20. When I got my commentaries out this week to prepare to study this, one of the probably greatest theologians alive, a guy called Don Carson, he he began his notes by saying, this is the most complicated passage in the entire Bible. Oh, that's how I started Tuesday morning. Anyway, we'll see how we get on this morning. So Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So Jesus says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins this clarification of the relationship between who he was, what he was teaching, and with what the Jewish people, the people of Jesus' day, had grown up knowing and believing with these words. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, what he's referring to is the whole of the Old Testament, what we would now know as the, as the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament then because there wasn't a New Testament. Okay? They called it, they referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets, or sometimes they referred to it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And whenever you read those expressions in the New Testament, that's always referring to the whole of the Old Testament. They refer to the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today as the Law and the Prophets, or as I say, sometimes as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's these 39 books which we call the Old Testament. And the Law was the first five books of the, te- of the Old Testament, and the Prophets was the remaining 34. 
Okay? So whenever Jesus refers to the prophets and the law, or the law and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, what he's referring to is what we now call the Old Testament. Okay? So whenever you see that in the New Testament, it refers to the whole of the Old Testament. That's what it means. It's these three or two sections of all the different books in the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus was meaning in this verse when he says this. In other words, what he was saying was, look, don't think I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it. All the stuff that you've grown up with, I've not come to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. Fulfill it in the sense that he himself was the object and the person to which the whole of the the Old Testament pointed towards. The Old Testament pointed to the Messiah and the kingdom that he would introduce. We've been singing about Jesus being the Messiah, God's special king. And the whole of the Old Testament points towards the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to come as a special king. And Jesus says, look, I am that king. He is the, the fulfillment of it. And he introduces himself as the Messiah, as this chosen king. And he introduces himself as that. And also he introduces the kingdom to his followers. The Old Testament was comprised of two parts, the law and the prophets. Okay? The first five books of the Bible are known as the law, but they also contain within them the special law, what's called the Jewish law or the law of Moses. And the law was the name given to the, the covenant or the agreement, the special relationship which God entered into with the, the nation of Israel. And it contained all sorts of rules and regulations. Particularly, perhaps you'll be familiar with the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were the kind of headlines of the law. There were lots of other stuff as well. But it was all about how to live, how to behave, including the Ten Commandments, but also how to worship God. But the problem was that no human being was ever able to keep all of those rules and regulations. If we were honest this morning, whether it comes to the Ten Commandments or all of those other smaller commandments that follow the Ten Commandments, we'd all say, yeah, none of us can keep the Ten Commandments. We all know that. We've all kind of blown it. We've all messed up. No human being that has ever lived was, a- was ever able to keep this law that God gave, which was contained in the first five books of the Bible. So although the law was good in and of itself, it revealed how bad humans were. The law was good, but it reveals how bad we are. The law shows us that we're morally corrupt right to our very hearts, and it shows us that we need a savior. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you think, yeah, I have failed on pretty much all of those in one way or another. That tells me I've got a problem, but it also tells me I need someone to solve my problem. And that problem is sin, and the, problem who, the person who can solve that problem is Jesus. And Paul says this in the New Testament. He says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So the law shows us that we need a savior. The Greek word that is translated from here is like a schoolmaster. The law is like a school teacher showing us our need of a savior. It It leads us to Jesus. But how is Jesus our savior? What makes him different to us? How can he save us when nobody else can and we can't save ourselves? Well, Jesus was the only person who ever lived that was able to keep every single rule and regulation of the law. In every single minute bit, Jesus kept every one of them because he was sinless, because he was God come as a human being. And so because he met God's perfect standard, if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and if we ask him to save us from our sins, from all our wrongdoing, then when we do that, then God does a swap. He takes all our failures, all our sins, all our mess-ups, all our foul He takes them from us, and instead he gives them... He gives to us Jesus' perfection, Jesus' righteousness. 
It's what theologians call imputing. God imputes. God thinks of the perfection, the, 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 the ability to keep all of the laws and regulations. He thinks of that which belonged to Jesus. He thinks of it as belonging to us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's a bit like when you're swimming and you're about to drown. I don't swim very well. I can just about swim. But if you're about to drown, but you reach out in faith to cling on to a life vest. Maybe somebody throws you a life vest and, and you reach out in faith to cling on to it. And the buoyancy of that life jacket becomes your buoyancy. You are not buoyant. You are sinking. But you take the life jacket and the buoyancy of the life jacket suddenly becomes your buoyancy and it rescues us. And it's a bit like that when we put our faith in Jesus. What we're doing is saying, I'm drowning, but this thing over here, this Jesus can save me. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we give our lives to him, God gives us, not, our, not buoyancy, but he gives us the perfection, the ability to... Uh, that Jesus had to, to meet every perfect standard of God. And he thinks of that then as belonging to us. We put our faith in the life jacket, as it were, and it does what we can't do for ourselves. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because he's met every requirement of all of those rules and regulations. He's met God's perfect standard. But Jesus is also the fulfillment of the law in that he's accomplished some really key things, such as in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and what he continues to do right now in heaven. See, the law laid out all sorts of rules and regulations about how the Jews were to approach God, how they were to worship God, and all of those rituals and offerings and the different things they had to do, the way the temple had to be built, and all the different things of furnishings, they all pointed to Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. They were physical realities. The temple was a physical reality. The stuff that went in the temple was a physical thing, the physical furniture, all the rest of it. But they, they were physical realities that pointed towards and were fulfilled in Jesus. Comple fulfilled in a complete way by who Jesus was and by what he did and what he continues to do through his life, his death, and his resurrection and in heaven right now. As the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. And we haven't got time this morning to go into every part of the Jewish law, but every aspect of how it regulated how people could approach God was symbolic and pointed towards Jesus. And when he lived and died and rose again and returned to heaven, he became the reality. He was both the good thing and the bringer of the good things that the law pointed towards. Jesus referred to the other 34 books of the Old Testament as the prophets, although the first five books do contain some prophecies as well, and, and Moses, who wrote the first five books, was also called a prophet, but the prophets refer to the other 34 books of the Old Testament, okay? So we've got the law, which is the first five books, and Jesus completes them and fulfills them. He's the fulfillment of it, and the, the other 34 books are the prophets, and they're mostly written by men who were prophets that God spoke through to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, and they contained lots of prophecies about this special king. And that special king, or Messiah as he was called, was none other than Jesus himself. Jesus was the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah when he came. And so he was the fulfillment of the prophets. And Jesus not only fulfilled all the individual prophecies, and there are hundreds and thousands in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus, by the way he lived his life, what happened on the cross, and his resurrection, and so on. But he was the fulfillment and the culmination of all that these books said and taught. And when Jesus appeared to some of the disciples after he had risen from the dead, he said these words. He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
And so in, Jesus is saying, look, I am the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's what Jesus means when he uses those terms. And in saying that, Jesus is also saying that the Old Testament is completely accurate and completely true in everything it says. And it continues to be completely true and completely accurate in everything it says. It continues to be God's word today. And that's why Jesus continues in this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 by saying this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means, sorry, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now don't forget, Jesus was and is God. And it was God who was the divine author of the Old Testament. And so Jesus, as God, oversaw and inspired every word of the Old Testament. There's, no, there's nothing at odds between Jesus and the Old Testament. He authored it. He is the Word of God, and he gave every word. He inspired every word because he's God. So if we want to fully understand and relate to the Old Testament properly, we've got to do that through Jesus. We've got to understand who Jesus is to understand what the Old Testament is really saying to us. The Old Testament is like a, a big arrow that is fulfilled by and in Jesus, like a, a big question mark, and Jesus is the answer, if you like. The Old Testament is the question, and Jesus is the answer. And the Old Testament continues to be God's word. Every word has come from God, and the fact that the law highlights and our sinfulness and our sin and our need of a Savior and points to Jesus, that will continue to be the case until Jesus has fulfilled everything completely. And that won't happen until he comes again and creates a new heaven and a new earth and once and for all deals with sin forever. So Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament. However, as followers of Jesus, if, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you've put your faith and trust in him, we don't have to obey the rules and regulations of the Old Testament that are in the law. We're free from the law. Okay? Jesus fulfilled the law, and if we're his followers, we are now free from the law. The law continues to be God's word, continues to be good, continues to define and show us what sin looks like. It continues to show us how God views sin. But we're not bound by those rules and regulations in the law. In fact, Jesus repeatedly makes that clear, whether it was about Jewish food laws or about the Sabbath. And, and that's because the law was something that was externally imposed upon people. And it showed, and, and, and part of the reason for that was to demonstrate and show mankind, humanity, that they were sinful, that we're sinful. And when you impose a law on somebody from ex externally, you can't change what's inside, can you? You can try and restrict their behavior, but it doesn't change what's on the inside. It's just kind of external conformity. And the problem was that no matter how much a person tried under the Jewish law, they were incapable of keeping it. The law wasn't as good, but it's powerless to deal with the real problem. And that's because the real problem that we all have is something deep inside of our hearts, not our physical hearts, but our spiritual hearts. That's the real problem, and that's what the law shows. The law shows us that there's a problem in our hearts, and that problem is called sin. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The law is good, but it's weakened because we're unable to keep it due to the sin that's within us. It's what the Bible calls the flesh, our natural state, if you like. So Jesus came and kept every part of the Jewish law, and then as that sinless, perfect sacrifice, he died in our place to take the punishment for all the wrong things you've done and I've done, all those times that we've failed to complete, to keep God's perfect standard. So the law was powerless 
because it was weakened by our flesh. But Jesus came and in the likeness, he took on the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like you and I. He became a human being. But he offered his own life in our place so that we could have our sins forgiven and could be right with God. So Jesus is making it clear in Matthew 5 that he's not abolishing the Old Testament. What he's actually doing is fulfilling it. He is the fulfillment of it. He's the culmination of it. And as the fulfillment of it, he's now showing the way to be right with God. He's telling us how we can enter God's kingdom. He's showing us how we should live once we become part of God's kingdom. So having clarified the relationship to the Old Testament and the relationship of what he was teaching to the Old Testament, Jesus now makes it clear how he wants us to live. Look at what he says in uh, verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now when Jesus talks about commandments in this verse, he's not talking about the commands of the Jewish law. Okay? He's dealt with the Old Testament and the Jewish law in the previous verses. The Old Testament isn't being abolished, but because he's fulfilled it, those who follow Jesus are no longer bound by the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. We are free from the law. So when he talks about these commandments in verse 19, what he's referring to are the commands that he then sets out in the rest of this great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And he says that if we practice and teach these commands, that we will be called great in God's kingdom. And when Jesus uses the word greatness, he's telling us what God values. That's what he means here. He's telling us what it is that God values and what it is that God wants in us and what God commands us to do. And he's saying that obedient, being obedient to Jesus and the commandments of Jesus, that is true greatness. So Jesus is saying that the way to greatness isn't through our education, it's not through our qualifications, it's not through our status in life, it's not through our earning power, how big our house is, or our bank balance, or our human achievements. That's what everybody out there says is great, but that's not true greatness. That's not how greatness is viewed in God's eyes. Greatness in God's eyes is obedience to Jesus. That is true greatness. The way to greatness in God's kingdom is through being obedient to the commands of Jesus. So write that on your outline. True greatness comes through being obedient to Jesus. That is true greatness. And all the other stuff that we might do in life is just fluff ultimately. What really matters is whether I or you am obedient to Jesus. And then Jesus works through a whole variety of commands in the rest of this Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 to 7, and we're going to be working our way through them week by week over the next few weeks and months. And as we're going to see, obeying Jesus' commands doesn't mean just submitting externally to what Jesus says. That's what the Jews were doing with the law, or often trying to do, especially a group of religious experts called the Pharisees. They were devoted to keeping the law. They, they gave everything they could to try and make sure they ticked all the boxes, all the external rules and regulations, but they were missing the point. They tried their hardest to tick all the boxes and tried their hardest to do everything they were meant to do, but they were still in their hearts far from God. And in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus goes on to talk about a whole load of things about murder, about adultery, about divorce, about revenge, love, hate, giving, prayer, fasting, a whole load of things Jesus goes on to teach about. And over and over again, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, he shows that it's not about what we do externally. It's not about ticking a box and saying, well, I've not murdered anybody, therefore I'm a good person. What he's saying is, it's not about what we do externally, it's about what happens in our hearts that really matters. What we do externally does matter, 
Rules and regulations can be really helpful. They can suppress sinful behavior, and that's always a good thing. But we can be ticking all the boxes externally, and we can look as if we're living a really upright life, but still be sinning dreadfully in our hearts. We can try our hardest to try and keep all the rules and regulations that we can invent externally, and we might look the part, but inside our heart can still be far from God. For instance, as Jesus says later in Matthew 5, which we're going to look at, I think, in about two weeks' time, a man might be able to say, I've never committed adultery. I've never done that externally. And of course, that's great. We don't want men to commit adultery. That's always bad. But Jesus then says that if a man lusts after another woman, then he's committed adultery in his heart, even if he doesn't do it externally. So so being a follower of Jesus isn't about submitting to a list of external relations, a kind of list of do's and don'ts. That's just being religious. And Jesus doesn't want us to be religious. That's what the Pharisees did. They tried incredibly hard to submit to all the external regulations of the Jewish law, but their hearts inside were no different. They ticked all the boxes outside, but inside their hearts they weren't changed. Jesus said on one occasion that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. They were all painted and clean and bright on the outside, but inside they were like rotting, dirty flesh, dying, decaying bodies. It's quite a strong statement. Some of those statements that Jesus makes, we kind of, kind of wash over us a little bit. But Jesus was saying, look, you guys think you're, you're good because you're keeping all these rules and regulations. Actually, you're like a, you're like a rotting tomb. You're like a, a dead body inside. The external stuff is important. But what really matters to Jesus is obedience in our hearts. Because if we're truly obedient in our hearts, then that will flow into external obedience. If we get this right, if we get our heart right with God, that would change our external behavior. But if we start with the external behavior and try and change from the outside in, that won't work. We have to start from the inside, and that works its way outside. We can tick all the external boxes. We can look as if we're living an upright life. When deep inside, we're still filthy and rotten, and we know it. Lots of so-called Christianity, and and lots of people who profess to be Christians, are very good at conforming externally. We can turn up at church on a Sunday, we can dress the part, speak the part, we, we can look the part, but not be obedient to Jesus' commands in our hearts. We can be reading the Bible, we can be gaining lots of knowledge, but in the process we miss the point. We fail to let that knowledge change our hearts and our behavior. So many Christians are thirsty for knowledge. I want to study this. I want to know more about that. It's not about knowledge. It's about, is my heart any different? So easy to be a Pharisee, to to, to look as if we've got it all to sign up on the outside, but to be no different on the inside. What God wants for us is to start with our hearts And surrender our hearts to Jesus, because if he has our hearts, then our behavior will follow. It's impossible for Jesus to have our hearts and for us not to look different. If we don't look any different, then we does God really have our hearts? That's the big question. If God really has our hearts, if we've really given our hearts to him, then we will begin to change. We will begin to look different on the outside. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean here? Does he mean that we can get into the kingdom of heaven if we're better than the Pharisees? No, because nobody can be any better than the Pharisees. These guys were experts at being good. And Jesus says you've got to be better than them. So what does he mean? 
But what he means is that the Pharisees were incredibly righteous. They did everything they could to keep every part of the Jewish law, but their hearts inside were still like rotten tombs. There was something deeply wrong inside of them. Bright and clean on the outside, but rotten and dead on the inside. What Jesus was saying is, it's not enough to keep a list of rules and regulations. Jesus doesn't want us to be religious. What he wants is for our hearts to be transformed from the inside out. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus. So how can our righteousness, our goodness, if you like, surpass that of the Pharisees? Well, it's not about trying harder. Nobody could fault the Pharisees for trying hard. It's not about trying harder, it's about having a change deep inside of us. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was himself a Pharisee, and he wanted to know, how do I get into your kingdom? How do I get right with God? And Jesus said to him, look, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Can we have that verse up, please? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We all need a heart transplant. We all need a heart transformation. We all need to be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. You need to be born again spiritually. You need to have a heart transplant. Not a physical heart transplant, but a spiritual heart transplant. What does that mean? It means surrendering our lives to Jesus. It means coming to Jesus and saying, I have sinned. I have fallen short of your perfect standard. And I need you to rescue me because I am bound for hell. I I deserve your, your wrath and your judgment and your punishment. And I need you to come and be what I can't be. Just like that life jacket. And as we do that, as we humble ourselves, admit our sinfulness, and ask Jesus to rescue us and surrender ourselves to him, as we do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. God's Spirit comes within us and transforms us and changes us and gives us a new heart from the inside. A new life, life from above. And God in that moment gives us the perfection and the holiness of Jesus. doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect, holy people. But in God's eyes, he now views us as being perfect and holy. Paul says this in Romans 3. And this is what Martin Luther, the great man of the Reformation, he, he, was, a, he was a priest and he knew he couldn't get right with God. He was tormented by trying to keep rules and regulations. And one day in his cell, he realized, he read these verses, and he realized, I can get right with God, not by keeping rules, but, but by having my heart transla- transformed. And in this moment, Martin Luther became a Christian. Look at what Paul says. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That means that we're able to live in a relationship with God. Even though we still sin, even though we all still let God down, God has given the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. He thinks of that now as belonging to us if we give ourselves to Jesus. And then when we have that new heart, when we're born again, we can begin to change from the inside out. And then because we've been born again and God has changed us and transformed us from the inside, we then have the desire and the power to be different externally. So we're not trying to get right with God by keeping rules and regulations. We've got this new heart within us, and within our heart, the Holy Spirit lives, and he gives us the desire to be different, so that we change from the inside out, not from the outside in. But of course, even though we're born again, we still have the power, and we have the power to be obedient to the commands of Jesus, but we still sometimes choose not to. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 19. He doesn't say if we break his commandments or encourage others to, that we get kicked out 
of the kingdom of heaven. What he says that is that we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If we're born again, then nothing can change that. We can't be unborn again, but we, st- we can still, sadly, choose to be disobedient to Jesus. Great, Jesus is saying greatness, what God really values in God's kingdom, is obedience to Jesus. And it's about us being obedient to Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. This isn't greatness or, or, or uh, in terms of power and prestige in the way that we think of as humans. When Jesus uses the word greatness, he's telling us what God values and what God wants from us. He wants us to be obedient to Jesus, to the commands of Jesus. That's greatness. And it may be that although you've trusted in Jesus, perhaps many of you today have been born again, you've trusted in Jesus, but your heart has just gone a bit cold. You've drifted from Jesus, and you've stopped being obedient to him. That's sadly all too easy to do. It doesn't change our relationship with God, but our heart is no longer quite as on fire as it was, and we've just gone a bit cold. Jesus says these words in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. See, it's all about whether we love Jesus and how much we love Jesus. That's what it really boils down to. This is not about religion. This is a relationship with God through Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Do you love Jesus this morning? Do you love Jesus deep in your heart? Do you love him? He loves you. He loves you with a passion. He loved you so much that he gave himself on the cross to die in your place. And as he was nailed to that cross, you know, it wasn't, you know, the nails were horrendous, the whipping was awful, the crown of thorns was awful, but what was truly awful was the fact that for three hours on that cross, it went dark. And in those three hours of darkness, God poured his wrath and punishment, all the wrath and punishment that you deserve, that I deserve for all our sins, he poured that out on Jesus. Jesus was perfect, sinless. He didn't deserve any of that. But he went to the cross to take your place and my place so that by trusting in him, we could be as perfect and holy in God's eyes as Jesus. That's how much Jesus loves you. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Jesus, this is how much I love you as he opened his arms to be nailed to that cross. And if you're struggling to be obedient to Jesus, it's probably because your love for him has gone cold. You've lost sight of it. You don't realize perhaps just how much he loves you. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. We're going to take bread, which reminds us, speaks to us symbolically of Jesus' body, which was broken there on the cross as he was brutally crucified. And we're going to take uh, the wine, or in this case, it's just juice. As we take that, it reminds us, it's a picture, it's a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us there. It's just, just bread, it's just juice. But it symbolically speaks to us of all that Jesus did for us. And if you know and love Jesus this morning as your Lord and Savior, if you've had that heart transplant, if you've started that new life through the Holy Spirit coming to live in your life, through surrendering your life to Jesus, then I would invite you, we would invite you to take the bread and the juice this morning as it comes around. And as you do so, just just stop and think how greatly Jesus must have loved me. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. And as you do that, why not take that step to to recommit yourself to being obedient to him because love will produce obedience. If we love Jesus, we'll obey Jesus. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Jesus. You know lots about 
Jesus. You've maybe heard lots about Jesus, but you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never surrendered your life to him. You've never had that heart transplant. As the bread and the wine comes around this morning, why not take that opportunity to step out? This won't save you. This is just bread and juice. Jesus can save you. This speaks of Jesus. Well, I take that opportunity to reach out, as it were, and surrender your life to Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. Ask Jesus to change you from the inside out, to make you a brand new person, so that you can be in a relationship with God and you can become part of his kingdom. In a moment, the band are going to come and play for us. And they're going to lead us in a song. Then we're going to take communion together. We're going to take the bread and the wine. And as we take that bread and wine, let's use that as an opportunity. Just once again to fall in love with Jesus all over again. This isn't a ritual. This is about meeting with our Savior who loves us.